Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1. I'm going to read the portion out of Matthew where the Lord's Prayer is found. Uh, and We also actually just recited it a moment ago. I'll reread that. But then we're going to focus our attention this morning, morning on Colossians chapter 1. And so remember, if you have no idea where Colossians is, feel free to use the table of contents. It's not a sin to use it. We're in the New Testament. So you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Keep going to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And again, how to find things in the Bible if you're unfamiliar with it. We're going to be in chapter 1. So look for the big number 1 and then look for the little number 13. That's the verse that we're going to be in. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14. So look at those two little numbers. Don't want to assume that everybody knows how to find things and don't want to make people feel weird that they don't know how to find stuff. And again, how the Bible works is the Old Testament says somebody's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts say someone's here right now. And the whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. And so who is that someone? It's the promised Redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. And while you're opening up there, uh, the late pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul, of who uh, I have gleaned tremendously from, uh, told the story of a meeting that he had with an English pastor back in the 1960s. And Sproul was living in Philadelphia at the time. And the Englishman recounted his very first trip to Philadelphia, which also was his very first trip to America. And this Englishman had received a call to take a pastorate in that city, and he was there to see his future country and to kind of learn the history as he was coming across the pond for the first time and showed up in Philadelphia, which as you know, there was a lot of American history that happened around Philadelphia in that area. And so he recalled being shown around Philadelphia and visiting all of the, the local tourist attractions, as you know, the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall. And this person that was showing him around also told him stories about the American Revolution, which I'm sure he took great delight in speaking to an Englishman. And he said that, this guy said, I was really enjoying the trip and just kind of soaking all of the information up and seeing the sights that I had only heard about. And I was really enjoying it until we went into an old antique shop in a small historic town outside of Philadelphia called Germantown. And as they perused the old American memorabilia, this was kind of a particular antique shop that kind of focused in on revolutionary kind of era stuff. They saw a bunch of different signs and placards from the late 1700s. And they had some that had all the standard revolutionary slogans that we as Americans are used to seeing. You know, no taxation without representation and don't tread on me and all of these great slogans of the American Revolution. And, but as this man was telling the story, Sproul recounted this guy saying, there was one sign in particular that drew my attention and really made me think about the job that I had just crossed an ocean to begin. And one placard announced in bold letters, we serve no sovereign here. And the English pastor said, I had left my native land in response to this call, a vocation to be a minister of the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And suddenly I was filled with fear and consternation. I thought, how can I possibly preach to people about the kingdom of God when they have built into their culture this profound aversion to sovereignty. And you can imagine this Englishman coming and kind of being faced with American culture and kind of like the, one of the hotbeds of the American Revolution in, the, in Philadelphia and hearing, we serve no sovereign here. 
and going, how in the world am I going to be able to preach the kingdom of God to folks who just kind of have a knee-jerk reaction to that? And the first time I read that story, I probably had the same reaction you did when we were going through the no taxation without representation and all of that. You think, yeah, that's right. We have no king. Let freedom ring. Don't tread on me. But have you ever thought about what you actually pray for in the Lord's Prayer? You ever thought about that? What you actually pray for in the Lord's Prayer. We just did it a few seconds ago. Here's what Al Mohler said. He said, the Lord's Prayer is the prayer that turns the world upside down. Are you looking for a revolution? There's no clearer call to revolution than when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But this is a revolution that only God can bring. And he will do it. We learned last week that this very important prayer has historically been organized into six petitions. And as you know, we're following along with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we're just looking at those petitions in order. And so last week we looked at the first petition, Hallowed be your name. This week we're looking at the second petition, Your Kingdom Come. And here's what Kevin DeYoung said in his really helpful book. We mentioned this last week, just kind of how this prayer is laid out. He said, the first set of three requests focuses on God's glory, His name, His kingdom, and His will. The second set of three requests focus on our good, our provision, our forgiveness, and our protection. And again, a petition is asking God to do something. Last week, we're asking God, hallowed be your name. May your name be gloried and honored and in all that we do. And this week, we're looking at petition two, your kingdom come. And so the question is, what does this kingdom look like, and why should we care? What's this kingdom look like, and why should we care? And so let's look at Colossians 1. Just for a little bit of context, I'm going to reread the Lord's Prayer out of Matthew 6, and then we're going to look at Colossians 1. So let's give attention to the reading and hearing of God's Word. Jesus said, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And now Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Speaking of Christ, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Speaking of the father, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that and I hope you are. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we come before you and we ask for your help. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come and to be at work. Christ, may you be honored in all that we do. Thank you for your word that you have not left us alone to figure life out on our own. And we pray that we would receive it as directly from you with all the power and authority that goes along with it. May we hear the words of our King this morning. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, so we think about this topic of the kingdom. There is a quick disclaimer I need to... Layout. There is a 0% chance that I can cover every facet of this topic in its fullness in the time we have allotted. Okay, There's no way I'm going to be able to do it. 
So if you are here and you've studied up on that and you're like, well, Dave didn't really cover that aspect, I do not have time to do that this morning, okay? So with that disclaimer, have you ever thought about just how subversive this prayer is when you think about the 2,000 years of human history that Christians have prayed this across the world? You ever thought about how subversive this prayer actually is? While emperors have ruled, while kings and queens have sat on their throne, dictators, prime ministers, presidents, while all of them have sat in positions of power, Christians have openly been praying to and acknowledging another king right under their nose. You ever thought about that? This prayer of petition has set Christians at odds with worldly powers for centuries Think about an ancient Rome. They tried to enforce a loyalty oath to the emperor. There was this cult of people, this, this whole cult that surrounded the emperor who was seen as divine. And they were requiring people to say the, the word or say the words Kaiser Kurios, Caesar is Lord. Christians responded by being good citizens, by paying their taxes, by honoring their leaders, etc. But they could not in good conscience obey the mandate of Caesar to call him Lord. And their response to this oath was to say, Jesus ha kurios, Jesus is Lord. And it cost many of them their livelihoods, it cost many of them their lives as well. As they butted up against this emperor who said, no, you must claim that I am sovereign, that I am Lord. And Christian said, I can't do it. I'm going to live as a good citizen, but I cannot say that because Jesus is Lord. We see it even now as we hear stories of Christians being persecuted and killed for claiming Christ as their true king and sovereign. We pray each and every week for the church around the globe, and we have ministries like Voice of the Martyrs, and we hear stories from the field of people who are, who are claiming Jesus is Lord. He is my king. He is my sovereign and facing physical harm and loss of income. It's even going on today. And the scripture does call us to be good citizens. Romans 13 tells us that, but at the end of the day, if the government compels us to do something that is in direct opposition to a clear command of God, we must obey God. Because He is the ultimate sovereign that we have bowed the knee to. He is our King. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles were dragged before the Jerusalem council. And in verses 27 to 29 of Acts 5, it reads, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. If you're a Christian, have you ever thought about the fact that spiritually you actually are a monarchist and you actually do serve a sovereign? You ever thought about that? I know it grates against our American sensibilities, but have you actually thought about the fact that you in reality, spiritually speaking, are a monarchist and you have bowed the knee to a king who rules over all of his sovereign territory? Think about how many hymns and prayers and creeds we interact with that talk about the king and his kingdom and his rule. Here's what Sproul said. He said, in a realm where sovereignty exists, it's not the will of the people that is ultimate. It is not the will of the individual that is ultimate. In a monarchy, it is the will of the sovereign. 
And again, I get it. That grades against our American sensibilities. But unlike the kings and rulers of this world, our king and his kingdom is very different. And our king is actually worthy of serving and submitting to because he's good and he's holy and he's right. All of his ways are good. And so the big question we're going to ask this morning is, what do we learn about the kingdom of God in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? We're going to see two things. We're going to see the reality of God's kingdom. And the second point is we're going to see our relationship to that kingdom. So the reality of the kingdom and then our relationship to it. So let's look at that first point, the reality of God's kingdom. I know if you are, you know, follow the news even just a little bit, there's a lot of talk today about the erosion of our culture, the growing reach of government, and a growing threat against Christians. And that all may be very true, but the comforting thing is that there has never been a time when God has not been the absolute sovereign over all that he has created, and wherever a sovereign reigns, that is his kingdom. There has never been a time where God has not been sovereign. He's always sovereign. And so if we're just petitioning God to bring his kingdom into existence, it already exists. And so there must be something else that we're asking God to do in the Lord's Prayer, that we're petitioning God to do. And so then what exactly are we petitioning God to do when we pray for his kingdom to come? If it already exists, if he already is ruling and reigning over all that he made, what are we specifically asking God to do when we come before him and we say, your kingdom come? Thankfully... Historic Reformed confessionalism is here to help you out. Here's the answer to Heidelberg Catechism. As I've said before, we in the Presbyterian and Reformed world, we write everything down. And we have these old creeds and confessions that have been around for hundreds of years that help answer questions just like this. Heidelberg Catechism, answer number 23, on the second petition said, Thy kingdom come. That is, so rule us by thy word and spirit that more and more we, we may submit to thee. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil. Every power that raises itself against thee and every conspiracy against thy holy word. Do all of this until the fullness of thy kingdom comes, wherein thou shalt be all in all. If you like these and thou's, Heidelberg Catechism right there for you. Westminster Shorter Catechism that we read just a little while ago that we all confessed together. Again, here's what it says. It's in your bulletin. It says, In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Super helpful stuff that's been around for hundreds of years as we think about this second petition. Theologically, if you like kind of nerdy theology phrases. What we're talking about here is in inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. And if you don't really like the nerdy theological terms, there's a better way to think about it. The already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. So whichever one you like, there you go. Here's what DeYoung said about this. He said, The kingdom is already but not yet. It is present and future. It is like the sun in the sky breaking through the clouds, but the rain has not fully passed, and the brightness of the sun is, is not now experienced as it will be in the future. This is why Jesus tells so many parables with the same basic point. The kingdom looks small and unimpressive right now. 
But at the end of the age, it will be unbelievably grand and glorious. I thought that illustration of the sun was super helpful. You know, the sun is always there. The clouds, though, sometimes cover it, but it's still there. And there's rays of light that have already broken into it, but it hasn't come in its fullness. The Old Testament asks, remember we said, you know, somebody's coming, but it also asks another question. When will the true king come? And we see the people rebel and they cry out for a king over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And the prophets warn over and over and over again that human kings, if that's what you want, they're only going to ruin you. They're only going to take your stuff. They're going to fail you. And the Old Testament cries out, when's the good king going to come? And the people cry out, give us a king. We want that king. And we know the history of that. If you read your Old Testament, none of that really works out well, does it? Because all human kings and rulers fail. And we see story after story about the failures of human kings and leaders. And then the Gospels come and they say, the true king has come into the world. He's here. And right before Jesus called his first disciples, he said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And again, that's our call. We just proclaim those same words of Christ, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so repent and believe the gospel. That means is if you're here and you do not trust Christ as faith, by faith, you are not the king. You are not the sovereign. And your self-salvation project is not going to work. It's going to go in the dustbin to failure. And so we look to Christ. And I plead with you as a minister in the gospel to look to Jesus. Put down your crown and run to the good, true, and righteous king who has ruled and reigned. And he reigns even now. Repent and believe the gospel. Bow the knee to the only good king in human history who willingly laid down his life for his enemies. Repent and believe the gospel. It's the words of our king that we just continue to lay before others. Look to Christ, rest in Christ, trust in Christ. And so we think about the rest of the New Testament that we're in even right now with Colossians. And it is saying the true king is returning. There is this great promise that is there. This true king, this one is coming back and he's, re he's returning. And so if the kingdom of God is already broken into the world... If, it's, if it is a distinct reality, it is already here. Whether you believe it or not, it is already here, but not yet come in its fullness. Okay, so what? What's our relationship to this kingdom now? That's our second point. Second point. The kingdom of God is the heavenly world breaking into our earthly existence. And have you ever thought about the fact that one of the main outposts or embassies of that kingdom is the visible church? We are an embassy of that kingdom where God has said, this is my sovereign territory. These are my people. So when you come into a visible local church on a Sunday morning, you are stepping into an embassy of another kingdom. You ever thought about that? We are one of the main outposts of the kingdom. Calvin said the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible we do that while living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of Christ's kingship. And the church dwelling peacefully on earth in a multitude of nations, you think about these little embassies that exist all around the globe, they exist to advance the interest of another kingdom, the spiritual kingdom of Christ, not our own. And that's hard, right? Because we love to build our own little kingdoms. But what we do when we gather here is we proclaim that we serve another king and there is a king that rules and reigns and it's not us. 
We do this through the simple means of grace as we gather together on the Lord's Day. Word, sacrament, prayer, relying upon the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We look to Christ. And again, DeYoung said, we're asking God for the inbreaking of the messianic age. We're asking for His commandments to be obeyed promptly, gladly, and sincerely. We're asking Christ to reign in human hearts. We're asking Christ to reign in human hearts. And remember, as we pray this prayer, who are we asking God to start with? Us. Us first. Lord, reign in my heart. Lord, be the king of my heart. As we pray, your kingdom come. May it start with me. May it start with us first. May we humble ourselves before you. Start with us first, Lord. And what that allows us to do is we don't look down our noses and say, well, what's the matter with the rest of y'all? Why can't you figure this out? We say, Lord, please start with me. Please start with me and my heart first. We want others to know our good king. And we want others to know the blessing of being a part of his kingdom. Again, we talked about last week, hallowed be your name is one of the great kind of emphases that we that kind of propel us into missions and evangelism. It's also this, your kingdom come. We want others to know our good king and how good it is to rest in his good kingdom. We want others to know how good and precious it is to be part of the kingdom of God. And one of the ways that we do this is we remember who we were before God set his love upon us and drew us near and this, this is not a kingdom reserved for only the perfect people. And that is really good news. Imagine only being able to be included in the kingdom of God if you had a perfect spiritual resume. Who would be included in the kingdom? Not us. I can tell you that much. We have to remember who we were before God set his love upon us and moved us from enemies to his friends and his children and made us heirs of his kingdom. Remember, this is a spiritual birthright we're talking about here. We don't come in our own flesh and blood in, under the first Adam having an inheritance in the spiritual kingdom. What we are having inheritance to is death and the wrath of God. But yet, by grace alone, through Christ alone and faith alone, we are now brought into this new kingdom and now have a new spiritual birthright because of Christ it's amazing when you think about it. So who is this kingdom composed of? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I promise I'm about to get to Colossians. I promise. I'm almost there. Okay? It's all baked in. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Who, who is this kingdom comprised of? Paul wrote, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, sanctified is being... More, more and more conformed to the image of Christ, being made more and more holy over the process of your life. You were justified. That is a legal declaration. You once moved into the courtroom and you were guilty and your guilt was not in question. But now, by grace, you have been declared righteous in that courtroom, declared not guilty because Christ's righteousness, his perfect record, is now credited to your account. And you are now seen as not guilty before a holy God. It's the gospel. 
And he says, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, so if all of that's true, let's look back to Colossians 1.13. Speaking about the work of God the Father and drawing all these to himself. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And again, those verses are never going to really sink into your heart until again, yet again as I remind you, you're the bad guy in the story. He has transferred you from this kingdom, marked by death and destruction and wrath, into this new kingdom by grace alone. You didn't deserve it. You think about just what's going on here, the impact of those words hit, because the word for delivered in verse 13 is the word meaning rescued. You've been rescued. And the word translated, the word translated transferred is a Greek word that implies a mighty king deporting an entire population to a new realm. What this points to is a complete change of status, a completely new homeland. You have been picked up, And now your homeland is here. That's what that word implies. And so you think about what's going on here in this chapter. What we have is the people under the power and authority of Satan and his domain of darkness and death have been moved by God the Father into a completely new kingdom ruled by his beloved Son. And it says that they have been redeemed. And what that word means is literally bought back. Literally purchased back. And granted forgiveness for all the ways that they rebelled against the king who, brought, who bought them back in the first place. All the ways that you've sinned against that king. He has now not only purchased you back, but he has forgiven you. And brought you into his kingdom. And not a single one of those who are in this new kingdom deserve it. Because of their sin against that king. And so the kingdom of God is composed of sinful people like you and me. Those who have been sought out by grace, delivered from the domain and kingdom of darkness, and transferred into the dominion and kingdom of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. And now we stand as forgiven, redeemed, and justified in Christ alone. And every bit of this is a divine grace. It's all a gift. Every bit of it. Think about that for a second. All of the promises that are right here, transferred, redeemed, purchased back, forgiven, all of that stuff, now in this new kingdom, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, while you were at your worst. He sought you out. It's the gospel. What's it? Is this on? It's amazing when you think about it. Here's the thing, the very fact that you have any affiliation this morning with the kingdom of God is because that king sought you out first while you were his enemy and adopted you into his family and made you an heir to the kingdom while you were a beggar at the gate. That's the reality of the kingdom. And we say, thank you, Lord. And yet we still fight him at the heart level that we want to be the king and the sovereign, the king and the queen, right? We still say, well, I'd like to be in charge, thank you very much. And we think about the reality of this kingdom and just the blessings that go along with this. You just stand in awe of it and go, Lord, why would you be such a gracious king to a scoundrel like me who has shaken my fist at you and said, we serve no sovereign here. 
And I've been brought into your kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. And now have an inheritance that will never fade, will never fail. And have a king who is good and his heart is true and his rule, his rule is holy. He's unlike any other king we could ever know. Again, DeYoung said, it's again like the sun breaking in. You don't build the sun. You don't make the sun. You can pray that the clouds would part. It's not something you can build or bring. The kingdom is God's kingdom, and we can receive it, seek it, or enter it, or inherit it, but we do not create it, bring it, or even give it to others. Only God can give the kingdom. All of it, all of it is a work of God's sovereignty. And at the very center of this heavenly kingdom stands a king who gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. It says, through him we have received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Think about when we think about when I say the word government or ruler or king. What do you think about? What is your history? You, we think take and take and take and take and take. Think about our king and his kingdom. He gives and he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. The contrast could not be any more stark. And look at verse 14. He gives. What's one of the ways that he gives? He gives by graciously forgiving the sins of his chosen people by taking their punishment upon himself and dying the death that they justly deserved. One of the ways that he gives is he says, I'm going to take the punishment upon myself and I'm going to die in your place. Name me one other king who's done that. I'm going to do it for you so that my enemies could be now inheritors of the kingdom. It's crazy when you think about it. And that is who is at the very center of this kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You want a great verse that you can commit to memory that has a just gospel encapsulated in one spot? 2 Corinthians 5.21. I triple dog dare you to memorize it. Slight breach of etiquette, I know. I went straight for the triple dog dare. I get that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the gospel. And you think, well, did Jesus become a sinner? No. He remained fully God, fully man, holy, holy, holy. But yet, he was treated as a sinner. Treated as a sinner. And died in your place. His atoning death on the cross is the key that unlocked this transfer. Gospel, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Okay, so now we're like, okay, all this is true. Why should we care? Why should we care? Let's put the landing gear out. Let's bring this thing in. Why, why should we care? If you are here and you consider yourself to be a Christian, it is 100% because the king sought you out and brought you into his kingdom from that spiritually dead beggar at the gate to a child of the king. It is 100% hundred percent a work of the sovereign God. It's not 99% him and you 1%. It's not the way it works. You don't have the 1%. It is 100% a work of God's sovereign grace in that work of redeeming and rescuing and purchasing back, all that good stuff. It's all the work of God. That means we, have no, we can't lay claim to any of it it means that we need to give up trying to build our own little kingdoms and instead work to herald the good news of the returning king. We put down our kingdoms 
And what we do is we go ahead and say, make way. The king is coming. It means we submit to his word, even if it includes things we don't like. Like that one thing that I just said a minute ago that you don't like, that it's 100% a work of God. And you're like, well, no. Yes, that's it. We submit to the word of God because we understand that it comes from the king. And we submit ourselves to it. And we know that it's going to be at work in our lives. And here again, Dean said this. Y'all aren't going to like this. I didn't like it. We must not allow any other identity to cut in line ahead of our identity as the children of our heavenly father and citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Whoo, I didn't like that. We do not seek first the triumph of our political party, uh uh-oh, or even our nation. We seek first God's kingdom and pray that his kingdom would come, whatever it may mean for our personal tribal and earthly kingdoms. We must always get the order and the priority right. God's kingdom first. That is our ultimate identity and concern. Now, you're thinking, political party, all that kind of stuff, y'all don't like that. Okay? Are those things bad in and of themselves? No, but they're not the ultimate. Our ultimate identity is in Christ and Christ alone and his kingdom. There There is no room for competing kings. There's no room for competition. He rules and reigns supreme. How powerful is he? Go read Revelation. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God. Not seek first, fill in the blank. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That is our call. To seek first the kingdom of God. This is why this prayer is so important. It reminds us that our sovereign God rules and reigns. This is simultaneously unbelievably humbling but also unbelievably comforting at the same time. That it's not our kingdom to build. It's our job to faithfully serve the king and trust him with the results in our own hearts and in the world around us. God's kingdom will come. His perfect will will be done because he's sovereign. And it may seem like the kingdom of darkness is advancing. It might feel like that now. But the kingdom of God is already broken through. And in the end, it will be way more glorious than we could ever imagine. And it's worth giving our lives for. It's worth pursuing. It's worth heralding the good news of the king. Because again, we're heralding the good news of a king who gives and gives and gives and gives. And we want our neighbors to know about that. We want them to know about our good king. Because his kingdom will never end. And in the end, it'll be glorious. It's a good thing to rest in the sovereignty of God and the kingship of Christ. Let me tell you a story. In 1996, we think about the kingdom and it looks kind of unimpressive now, especially when we think about the world around us. In 1996, Sotheby's auctioned off Jackie Kennedy Onassis' possessions. Sotheby's estimated that values were, their, their estimated values were miles away from the mark. They estimated kind of a grand total take of around $5 million. But in the end, all this stuff went for over $30 million. JFK's desk, for example, the asking price was three grand, which seems laughable. But remember, this is the 60s, or, or this is 96. This is before everything went crazy. They asked $3,000 for it, which was a steal. But guess how much it went for? $1.5 million. A 1910 German earthenware pot, they were asking 800 bucks for it. It went for $37,000. 
A 19th century footstool went for 290 times its asking price of just $100. You do the decimals. There was a string of fake pearls that they only wanted $500 for, but it ended up going for 200 grand. Fake pearls. For, somebody paid $48,875 for Jackie Onassis's tape measure. 1.16 for JFK's golf clubs. And there was a baby grand that was sold for $150,000. Baby grand piano. And the lady who bought it said, it's a gift for my husband. He doesn't play the piano, but he will. <laughs> yeah, great story. You think about this, you're like, what in the world does that have to do with the kingdom of God, Dave? Okay, we all entirely underestimate the value of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Yet just as the auction revealed the value of Jackie Onassis' possessions, so when Christ comes and brings his kingdom in its fullness, we will be astonished at its glory. There are some today who mock the idea of giving all for having Christ. And they look at people who go and they give their lives away on the mission field, or even just normal everyday Christians, and they're like, you give up Sunday morning once a week? And you give up your income, your time, your talent, and your treasure to serve this king that you've never actually seen face to face? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And the watching world mocks what we do and mocks our claims of Christ as our king. And they mock the idea of having, giving all for having Christ. And some, some of us say that we will give all, but when you think about in the end of it all and all of the time, talent, and treasure that you are sowing into this kingdom, in the end, we will all be surprised at its worth. And all that we have given will just be a drop in the bucket compared to its glory. And so that's what we're praying. Your kingdom come. Make that come in all of its fullness. And help me to trust and rest in you. That's why we pray thy kingdom come. Because our good king sits on the throne right now and has promised to return in glory and bring his kingdom to bear in all of its fullness. And so we pray with great expectation, but also with great hope. And our prayer is this, thy kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and make it right. But even while you tarry, help us to be faithful to you as our good and sovereign king and help us to herald your good news to the world around us that thinks it's crazy. And may your sovereign power change hearts as we want to see the kingdom of Christ rule in the hearts of people just like it has for us and none of us deserve it. It's the gospel. Thy kingdom come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy. We think about who we were before you transferred us into the kingdom of your son. We who once were far off, we who were once not a people, now are a people. Those who once had not received mercy, now have received mercy by grace. We do pray that your kingdom would come. May it start with us first. Lord, help us to repent of all the ways that we are fighting against your sovereign rule. Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we are trying to be a competing sovereign and help us to bow the knee to you. Help us to trust you and trust your good kingdom and, your, and trust your throne and it will endure forever. And thank you, Lord, that you're not like any other human leader or king that just takes and takes and takes. You are a God who gives and gives and gives more, grace upon grace, because of your love for your covenant people. 
May that take our breath away when we think about that none of us deserve to be an heir to this kingdom, but by grace we have been given it through the finished work of Christ on our behalf. May that humble us, comfort us, and also propel us forward to tell others about the good King. We pray and ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.